Hello, this is Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and other platforms. And if you want to help keep them coming and to hear all of my patron-only materials, including the last installment of the History of the United States and 100 Objects, please go to my Patreon page and become a supporter. So this will be installment number 13, the Dutch cast-iron fireback with a robed figure. So this particular object is made out of cast-iron, probably was manufactured in the Netherlands in about the 1650s. It was found by the hearth of an abandoned house at a site called The Flats, which was a Dutch colonial manor near Albany in what's now upstate New York, but at that time was New Netherlands. The full design of this fireback is lost because most of it corroded and crumbled away. But a fragment remains, which shows a piece of a scene with a robed figure. So what is this object? Where is this place where it was found called the Flats? And why is it significant? What does it show about early colonial America? Well, this site was a farm and a state house located along the western banks of the Hudson River, about four miles upriver of what the Dutch called Fort Orange, a small fortified colonial outpost at the site of what's now Albany. And this farm was founded in 1642 on a large flat area on the riverside, which the Dutch called De Flakte, or simply the plains or the flats in English. The founder and owner of this farm was a man named Arendt van Kurler, a colonial agent and functionary who grew up in the Netherlands and was hired to help manage a large colonial domain belonging to the van Rensselaer family, which was called Rensselaerswijk. And he was hired specifically by his great uncle, Kilian van Rensselaer, who was a patroon of this estate or colony around the area that's now Albany, Troy, and Schenectady at the juncture of the Hudson and Mohawk rivers. And Kilian van Rensselaer hired his grandnephew, Arendt van Kurler, to help manage the accounts and oversee the various properties around Rensselaerswijk. But he showed great ability, and Arendt moved up in the hierarchy of the company and eventually took up the management of the fur trade around Rensselaerswijk, which was by far the most important commerce in and out of this northern end of New Netherlands and was really the main purpose and reason for Rensselaerswijk to exist in the first place. So as soon as he had the money and power and wherewithal, Arendt von Kurler built a large estate at the flats and planned it to be self-supporting, to supply its own food and basic needs, 
and to manage the fur trade, mainly northward with the Mohawks and Mohicans, who were important allies and trading partners of the Dutch in the interior of North America. And the farm at the Flats was positioned to act as an outpost and to intercept trading parties that might come downriver from the north with beaver pelts and other furs. And Arndt von Kurler reportedly was quite respected among these indigenous trading partners. He had a reputation for being fair and dependable, and he sometimes oversaw negotiation for the return of European captives, which was very important at this time. And his relationships with these nations like the Mohawks and the Mohicans were crucial for keeping Dutch access to these sources of pelts against encroaching competition from the French and New England. Once he had established himself and had a certain degree of prosperity, Arndt von Kurler married Antonia, the widow of Jonas Bronck, who had been the sort of patriarch of the Bronck family, which owned the estate that is now the Bronx in New York City. And he became a fairly prominent and respected personage in New Netherlands. He helped to found a school for educating Dutch children near the flats. And in 1662, he led the founding of the town of Schenectady, which, of course, is still there. However, not long after that, he drowned in a storm on Lake Champlain in 1667. So if we look specifically at the flats, this farm and estate where Arndt von Kurler lived, it survived largely by growing oats as its main crop and raising horses, which were important as trading commodities, both within North America and in the Caribbean islands. And they also raised cattle and other livestock and produced cheese and dairy. And on the farm, von Kurler built a massive central building, measuring about 120 feet by 28 feet. And one half of this enormous building was barns and stables for the livestock, and the other half was dwellings for the family and their servants. The building was separated, these two halves were separated down the middle by a thick brick firewall, with a large open hearth set into the middle of it, which could project heat and light in either direction. So this basic design of this kind of grand farm or manor house was very reminiscent of examples in Northern Europe, such as in the Netherlands. And with von Kurler's increasing prosperity after about 1650, he was able to furnish this manor house with a great deal of fine furniture and art, including paintings that he commissioned, uh, casement windows with good quality glass, and he collected dishware, including Mediterranean majolica ware, probably from Italy and Spain, and Venetian glassware. With von Kurler's death in 1667, the ownership of the flats passed to the von Rensselaer family, who were his relatives. And the heirs of the von Rensselaers sold the flats to another colonist named Philip Schuyler in 1672. And it passed down for some time and was used by Philip Schuyler's descendants. 
but eventually it fell into disuse and disrepair. It burned down in 1961, and archaeologists were able to move into the site before it was completely built over by a highway and were able to start excavating the cellars and foundations starting in 1971. So in the 1970s, teams of archaeologists found a variety of objects, including farming and building tools, horseshoes, including, interestingly, a set of horseshoes and stakes set up for the game of horseshoes, which was very unusual among the Dutch and which von Kurler probably learned and adopted from English trading partners. They also found many weapons, cloth, and glass, which were probably for trading. And they also found some pewter goods, such as spoons and thimbles, simple pewter implements, in various states of production, indicating that probably there were pewter metalworkers actually producing goods for trade there on the premises. And around that central hearth in the middle of the manor house, they found fine glazed tiles and plasterwork and this piece of what remained of an iron fireback. So what is a fireback? What is this thing and what can we learn from it? Well, a fireback is a panel, usually made of iron, which can be placed on one side of an open hearth in order to reflect heat into a room. So you'd want to have at least one if you have this open hearth facing both directions like von Kurler had in the flats. And most likely it was used to close off the barn and reflect heat and light into the domestic hall for the people like von Kurler and his wife and their servants to enjoy. Firebacks have been produced in Europe for many centuries. It would be a familiar object to have in all kinds of homes. And it was a common custom to imprint or emboss firebacks with symbols displaying the loyalties of the family who lived in the home. So many of them showed royal arms. You can see many English and British examples with the arms of the monarch. There are French examples, such as the one in the house in Domremy, France, where Joan of Arc grew up, which are decorated with a fleur-de-lis, which was the symbol of the French royal house. If we look at this fragment from the flats, most of it, as I said, is corroded and crumbled away, and we cannot know with any certainty what the full design was. But the remaining piece shows just a torso that seems to be clothed in a loose robe like a toga, with one arm upraised holding a spear. So we can't know for sure what the rest of this design was, but it basically matches other examples of Dutch firebacks from the 16 and 1700s, which tend to show a common repeated scene. And this scene centers on a lady in a robe reclining in a small garden and in one hand holding a lance with a hat on top. In front of her is a lion rearing up, holding a sword, and the garden in which the lady and the lion are situated is enclosed by a high circling fence. 
And the tympanum of the fireback is inscribed with Hollandia, simply the Latin form of Holland, and Pro Patria, which in Latin means for the fatherland. So the design is explicitly patriotic. The reclining lady probably represents Holland or the entire Dutch Republic. The spear and the lion show the military might of the Republic. And the walled garden in which she is reclining represents the Dutch domains and the Dutch empire, what was sometimes metaphorically called the Dutch garden. And within this enclosed empire, this fortified empire, the Republic is able to enjoy safety and prosperity represented by the garden. So creating a fire back like this and then placing it in the hearth of a large home was a very conscious move to connect on a symbolic level the security and comfort of the house to that of the state and to liken the domesticity of the home with the patriotic attachment to the larger state, in this case, the Dutch Republic and her empire. So what does it mean? What significance should we draw from the fact that a fireback like this was found in a house like the Flats in what was New Netherlands? Well, this fireback is very important because it shows how easily and how often the Dutch Empire can be misunderstood. The fireback shows an emphasis on tradition, security, and domesticity which was very important to New Netherlands. And the flats itself, you could see as a kind of microcosm of the New New Netherlands colony, which was built around large domains called in Dutch colonies, with an IE at the end, which the Dutch government granted to sort of benevolent protector proprietors called patroons, which just means patriarchs or bosses, who were drawn from powerful and prosperous Dutch families. And these special titles, these patroonships, were passed down and inherited patrilineally, such as in the von Rensselaer family, in the case of Rensselaerswijk. And these colonies that made up the New Netherlands, the larger New Netherlands colony, as we call it in English with a Y, were really modeled on European medieval estates and fiefdoms. And this whole social structure and this philosophy, I think, of patriotism, stability, domesticity that is embodied in this fireback really belies the common image that we tend to get today, the sort of stereotype of the Dutch as hard-nosed, practical, commercial, unsentimental, even sort of modern beyond their time. The perception that we often tend to have and to perpetuate of the Dutch Empire as a kind of series of bustling trading outposts, uh, which is really celebrated, such as in the recent book, uh, Island at the Center of the World by Russell Shorto, when in fact, if you look kind of beyond the little trading center that existed in a couple places like New Amsterdam at the lower end of Manhattan, In fact, the Dutch Empire was, to a great degree, an empire of agriculture, 
of landholding, which certainly did take advantage of important trade connections. And like the Netherlands itself, uh, made up for its small size and small population by taking advantage of strategic trading links, but which nonetheless really aimed at achieving a traditional European vision of success, which meant a secure, comfortable, and prosperous home on the model of a medieval manor, which was a microcosm of a secure and harmonious realm. So the fireback, I think, shows this, this close link, this sort of reflection between the microcosm of the secure, comfortable home and the secure, prosperous empire. And this, in fact, was the sort of vision taken up by many colonists. There are many examples of colonial estates centering on manor houses, supporting large staffs of servants, such as the mansion of the governor in St. Mary's City in Maryland, uh, many other smaller manor houses and farms of local officials, planters, merchants in Tidewater, Virginia, in other parts of New Netherlands, in places like Hammersmith in Newport in Rhode Island. And many of these places like Hammersmith in Rhode Island actually adopted names patterned on those of old country estates back in the home countries in Europe. So a lot of the point that I think this artifact illustrates in the place where it was found is that we should be careful when we talk about colonial society not to confuse results with causes. It may be that colonization over time ended up producing a very dynamic and commercial and individualist society that was more fluid and in some ways more egalitarian than the old world in Europe, but that wasn't necessarily what people intended. And in fact, there are all kinds of elites, including really minor elites like Arendt von Kurler, this sort of minor official who was able to parlay a family connection into a good job and make some money through the fur trade. There are a lot of these sort of minor and middling elites who really wanted very much to create a society of hierarchy, of manners and families and clans that showed the same sort of values and the same structures as what they had known back in Europe. So thank you so much for listening. And again, if you want to hear all of my materials, including the other installments in the history of the United States and 100 Objects, please go to my Patreon page and become a supporter at any level, even if it's just a dollar. Thank you.